This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Let's go. 3-2. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. Another Rizzo home run. Oh, that Rizzo rates his second home run tonight. He has five RBIs on the night. Nobody beats the Riz. Ground ball. This should do it. Lemayu up with it. And the Yankees sweep the Kansas City Royals, extend their winning streak to nine. And it's gone. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined by MLB.com National Content Editor Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Pretty sure we are foolishly hitting record about five minutes after Shohei Otani is starting to pitch in Boston, which means we're not great at scheduling because I would much rather see what's going on with Shohei Otani on the mound. We are going to start off today. We're going to talk about one team from each division that's really exceeding our expectations. Six divisions, six teams. We're going to go through each of them quickly and say, hey, do we buy this or not? We're going to move on and we're going to talk about the really interesting stat, the milestone that Walker Bueller is about to hit in his next start. We're going to talk about the incredibly interesting way that Eric Lauer turned himself into something that looks like an ace just when Milwaukee needed another very good pitcher and wonder if the Orioles broke Camden Yards. And obviously, we'll get into a pair of guys that you should talk about more. And by the way, I'm eyeballing our guys. These are not the kind of guys we usually look at. These are not like out of nowhere rookies. My guy is like 33. (laughs) Matt's guy was the top prospect. Uh, We're doing it differently this week. First... Let's start with the opener. Let's start with the teams that are exceeding expectations. Let's start with the Yankees, who are by far the best team in the American League East at this point. I wanted to highlight a a tweet I saw, and I was disappointed that this tweet had zero likes and zero retweets because I thought it was incredibly interesting. This is from Dan Hirsch, who actually works at Baseball Reference. He pointed out that the Yankees so far have thrown 224 and two-thirds innings with a 260 ERA. And then he pointed out that that combination of innings and ERA is almost exactly what Johan Santana in 2004, Tim Lincecum in 2008, Justin Verlander in 2009 had while winning the Cy Young. In case you're wondering if the Yankees are pitching well. <laughs> Matt, are you buying into the Yankees? Uh, I think I am. They're better than I thought they were. They're a really good run prevention team. Like They have really good pitching. They have the highest average four-slash-two-seam velocity average in the league, 94.8 miles per hour. They are the hardest-throwing team in the league right now. They've got good starting pitching, guys who throw hard and throw other stuff. They've got really good relief pitching. We mentioned, I think, Michael King on a recent podcast, who three three scoreless innings again last night. Obviously, I have a role to Chapman. I believe in the Yankees. I think the only question, there's two questions for me on the Yankees, which is that starting pitching depth, right? Like you're still relying on Luis Severino, who hasn't really been 
durable at all in his career. And the bottom of the lineup, which we've talked about a couple of times, of just like they really get nothing on offense at a catcher. I don't really buy Isaiah kiner Falefa as an everyday guy, but like maybe they get enough offense otherwise. I'm stealing an idea that I saw like referenced in, in Joe Sheehan's newsletter about their barrels. In batting, they have the most barrels hit as a team, right? 73, which is most of any team. The Braves are second at 70, which goes to show the quality of their content is legit. Aaron Judge leads the majors with 19 barrels. John Carlos Stanton is fourth with 13. Anthony Rizzo, for all the talk of like, oh, cheap Yankee Stadium home runs, and I've definitely piled on that, he is tied for 10th in the majors with 10 barrels, tied with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Freddie Freeman, Kyle Schwarber, and Jeremy Pena, which that's kind of amazing. Um, And then pitching, they've allowed the second fewest barrels, which goes to show you that they're not allowing great contact either. So I'm I'm believing. How about you? Do you you understand how to evaluate offense anymore? Because... As I'm looking at, and I'm not sure that I do. So Isaiah Kiner Falefa has a 701 OPS, which is not that great. It's also a 110 OPS plus. Um, so I don't know. He's he's been better than I thought. The fielding has actually um, perked up a lot. Like he's looked really good uh, on defense, and Aaron Judge has just been out of control. Good. And I kind of go back to what we talked about before the season with them, which was something along the lines of they're a very good team and the vibes are bad because nobody was happy with their offseason moves. And the, the moves have been okay. Like Josh Donaldson's been fine, you know, like kind he's of per, he's per- percolating a little bit. He went from like terrible for two weeks to at least like, okay, get some hits, hit the ball a little harder. Like there's some, some, some signs there. Yeah. I mean, the, the catching is still not good, um, but they have improved the defense, right? You look at the infield last April, they had a negative four outs above average this April plus three. I mean, that's not nothing. That was half the point. And it's kind of funny to see a team with Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton basically being a pitching and defense team. I guess that's unfair because they're still hitting the ball hard, obviously. I would say um, I'm in with the caveat that I, I still think that the other teams in the East are incredibly dangerous. Like we're not going to talk about the Rays right now, but Shane McClanahan has been pitching out of his absolute mind. But I think what's happened here is, um, well, two things. They banked a lot of wins and that, that counts. Like, you know, you don't undo those wins. And they banked a lot of those wins against some until they played Toronto this week, some really weak teams. And that was kind of their issue last year is they did not pound through Baltimore the, the same way everybody else did. So I picked, maybe that's a good way to do it. I picked Toronto to win the East, right? Am I ready to change my mind on that? I don't think so, but maybe I'm getting close. Who did you pick? I don't even remember. I picked the Rays. I'm still not sure I'm ready to um, change my mind, for, kind of for the reasons you mentioned, because, you know, the thing about beating up on bad teams, it's like, okay, they beat up the bad teams, but like, hey, they, you know, they won, they won nine straight against those bad teams and then two against Toronto. So like you have to they count, those games count. Like I'm still not ready to change my pick, but I think that like the Yankees are probably better than I thought. Like I thought they were like third, and now I'm like, oh, I think these three teams are basically a coin flip, as I see it now. So that's interesting because they still play in a tough division. And as we move on to the twins. In the American League Central, I'm not sure that they do anymore. Right? Uh, so the Twins are our overperformer in the American League Central because they are 15 and 10, and a big part of that is they are the only team in the division that's over 500. Right? Like we've talked about this already. I think Kansas City can't pitch, Detroit can't hit, Cleveland is kind of doing Cleveland things, and then the White Sox are I don't know treading water might be a way to put it. The Twins are really interesting, I think, because you came into the year and everybody's like, well, I don't buy the starting pitching. And for a lot of reasons, I, I don't know that I still do, but they do have the eighth best ERA, which is really good. And Joe Ryan, who I'm now just going to like retcon and say that I did actually pick him for the American League Rookie of the Year, even though I don't think I actually did. 
five starts, five earned runs. Um, Chris Paddock looked really good, right? He's got he's 16 strikeouts and two walks because he's invented a new slider. Like he, everybody knew he needed another pitch. And he's got this gyro slider that's actually kind of cool. So like I'm not out on Chris Paddock. Chris Archer's alive and doing you know some things, but I feel like you're you're not in on the starting pitching. I'm not saying I'm in in, but I'm I'm more confident than I was a month ago. I think my concern with them is that they. I think just like the, the math of getting innings is going to really catch up to them because even the pitchers who are pitching well, Joe Ryan, like I don't see him pitching, you know, even 180 innings, right? Same thing with like Ober and like Dylan Bundy. Like I just think that like they're going to – what's going to happen as the season goes on is they're going to have to ask more and more of their bullpen. And I just like I'm not sure their bullpen is good enough to kind of balance out the fact that they're going to be so demanding of their starting pitching. So I think that's – I think as the year goes on, there could be a little bit of attrition there. And that's that's my concern with them. Granted, it might not make a difference in that division with the White Sox. They're struggling. They're like – you could see it in the way they're they're managing their injured list. They did this again with Andrew Vaughn. They did it with Luis Robert last week where they had a guy, a key player, get hurt. And they basically sat him on the bench for a week instead of ILing him. And so they basically played shorthanded for a week for no reason just because they were, like, so afraid of losing a player that they think is, like, a core player. And that's always, like, a sign of a team that just, like, does not trust its depth at all. And now, they, now they've now Andrew Vaughn on the I.L., which is not good because he was their best hitter for the first three weeks of the season. So I think the Twins, you know, it's it's theirs to lose, as they say. I just do worry a little bit as the season goes on of that lack of length from their starting pitching catching up to them. I'm not sure I care if, the, if you have Joe Duran in the bullpen, though, because he has looked unbelievable. 19 strikeouts and two walks for a guy that I think uh, most people didn't actually know so much. And as you as you kind of pointed out off the air here, I had forgotten they picked him up when they traded Eduardo Escobar uh, to Arizona a couple years ago. Like that's going to turn out more, I, more than a few four years ago now. We're four ages. years. <laughs> um, and you know, hey, Carlos Correa got off to a really poor start, but he looks good. I kind of think it comes down as it always does to will Byron Buxton stay healthy or not. And you know, so far. So good. If we go to the AL West, this is actually the team that kind of started all this because this was the team I wanted to talk about. Are the Angels actually good? I should know better than to buy into this because they haven't been good in many years. Uh, as you know, the Red Sox game I just talked about is starting. They're 16 and 10. They are in first place and they're doing it in kind of an interesting way. Like, yes, Mike Trout is off to a phenomenal start, just like he always is. My guy I talked about last week was Taylor Ward, who is kind of having an out of nowhere great year. They're not doing it necessarily with bats, though. Because those are like the two guys. You know, Max Stassi's been fine. But you look at the rest of the lineup, Otani is not actually hitting that well. Rendon is not hit at all. They don't have a shortstop. You know, Jared Walsh has not hit that well at all. They just sent down Joe Adele. Like this is a lineup with a ton of holes. And I think coming into the season, if you'd said, hey, the Angels will do their usual thing, which is to have like two and a half good hitters, you'd be like, okay, well, that's the end of that. Except the pitching has actually been pretty good, right? I mean, Otani obviously has looked great. Um, Patrick Sandoval, who I've like, I've always really liked, has looked really good. They have, I don't know, five ish credible starters, which may not sound like a lot, but it's more than they've had in a while. And then the bullpen, Bryce Iglesias maybe is one of the more underrated relievers in the game, just because he's been one of the best back end relievers for like five or six years now. And nobody talks about him in that way. And I'm, I can't say I'm in on them yet because I've been burned so many times, but imagine if this is the year, it could still happen. I mean, the, the starting pitching is legitimately different. Like in the past, it was like, oh, do they even have one credible starter? And then they had Otani, who obviously, oh, he's Otani. But then, you know, for the first couple of years, it was like, well, he doesn't pitch that much. You know, he had T- so it's like, it's he had TJ. It's like a whole thing. Like, is he going to, you know, what are we actually getting from him? But now between Otani, Sandoval, and Noah Syndergaard, who's been really interesting, 
in a way that might not be sustainable, but might be because of the baseball and the way the baseball is playing. That you look at the rotation right now, you're like, oh, like that's like a legitimate top three. Like that's like I could see going into a playoff series and being like, okay, that's I can compete with that. Noah Syndergaard has basically stopped striking people out. But that was used to be his bread and butter. He used to strike out 25 percent of hitters. His K rate is below 15 percent. He's got a 2.63 ERA, 3.09 expected ERA, which suggests it's kind of real. And like he might be one of these guys who's just like, you know what? I've got this heavy sinker. You can't hit it out of the ballpark with the way the ball is playing right now. So I'm just going to pound the lower half of the zone and like it's working. The 31 balls in play on his sinker, three singles, a .97 slugging percentage. So like when you talked about before about like how do we judge offense, there's certain pitchers too where it's like the things we think we know about batting average on balls on play and home run fly ball rate, we kind of have to recalibrate a little bit because like it's obviously just a little different. And I think there are certain players, Syndergaard being one of them, who I'm watching very closely because I think that like he might be able to succeed in a way that is not traditional for him or really any other pitcher in recent history. You know, I'm glad you brought that up again, how you think about offense, because that kind of takes me to the Mets, who are our NLE's team. And I think totally by accident, I do not think this is the plan in any way. I think by accident, the Mets may have built a team that works for the way 2022 baseball works. Now, think about this, right? They're not hitting the ball hard at all. As of the other day, they were like last in the majors in hard hit rate, like below the Reds, literally the Reds. They were the worst. And you'd say to yourself, well, no team who does that can possibly succeed. And it does still give me a lot of apprehension going forward. Like McNeil is not hitting the ball hard. Starling Marte is not hitting the ball hard. Like you do need to do that. But they've been succeeding. And part of it is they're making a ton of contact. You know, they have, I think, one of the five lowest strikeout rates. Um, I'm looking at this now. They have an absolutely wild number of infield hits. Did you did you see by how much they're leading baseball? And they have 31 infield hits. Nobody else is more than 24. The Reds have six and again, that's not a strategy, I don't think. It's not like they have Billy Hamilton's on their team. I think it's a little bit of a thing that happens. Um, it's not something I think I would build a ton of confidence on going forward. But if you're in an environment where hitting the ball hard doesn't get you the results you think it ought to, and you can't do that anyway, make up for it with like a ton of contact. They're probably leading the planet in like bloop singles. And it's worked so far. But I don't know, how far can you count on that? It's McNeil is definitely interesting because he he was a player who came up and like he he was this sort of like you know spray the ball this like very like 1980s or like you know more recently more recently recent quote unquote like Luis Castillo like left hand hitter I'm just gonna try and like you know almost like a lot of like swing bunts you know like poor man's Ichiro style I think probably would be like the best way to describe it he was never a big prospect but he always hit like 300 in the minors he came up in 2018 he hit 330 in a short period of time and then 2019. The ball was flying. He hit 23 homers. He made the all-star team. It's like, and, and like he, he was a totally different player. And then I think the last couple of years, as the game's evolved, he's kept trying to play that way. Like, oh, I'm gonna try and like pull pull home runs. And he was not very last year he was he was bad. 679 OPS. He's even said, Oh, I'm back to being I'm I'm changing my approach. I'm going back to the approach I came in, I broke in with. And like his line right now is almost identical to his line in that 2018 season. So he's one player who's clearly like succeeding while like almost not trying to hit the ball hard. And I think for him, you know, him hitting 300 in this manner is probably sustainable. Um, but yeah, the weird one is more like Pete Alonso, who's like I've seen a bunch of times now poke the ball through second base, beating the shift. Like it's like is this is this what he's trying to do? Is this like kind of ex- is this a fluke? It's like it's a little bit hard to know. This is again, it's kind of like the Yankees. The Mets have banked these wins. 
they've also started fast before and faded. Like just last year, they had like an eight game lead on the Braves at one point. So this is not like uns- you know. I think the be- they're a better roster this year, but I still think the Braves have a better team. Whether or not that's enough to overcome sort of the early gap is probably where I stand. And oh, by the way, Max Scherzer and Chris Bassett and Tyler McGill all look incredibly good. <laughs> yes. Well, the starting the one thing about the team that I think is real is starting pitch is the starting pitching. The bullpen at the top they've got two or three really good guys, but there's not a ton of depth. The starting pitching is real, especially if like you know that Degrom guy comes back. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but I still, I mean, like you look at the Braves, and like I think the Braves probably have arguably three hitters that are better than any hitter the Mets have in Acuna, Riley, and Olson, and their starting pitching is comparable, and their bullpen is definitely better. Braves, the bottom of their lineup is a little weak. You know, there's, there's a bit of a fall off there. I think that's where the Mets probably have an edge is like depth one to nine. But I think the Braves have a better roster overall, but I'm not sure. Again, like it's not like far and away better and they already built a lead. So, you know, who knows? Yeah, I, I regret to admit that I'm buying into the Mets. Wow, interesting. I don't feel good about it, but <laughs> here we are. And, you know, as you were as you were talking there, I was kind of I was thinking that there's some interesting parallels to be drawn, I think between the Mets and the Cardinals, who are sort of overperformer in the NL Central here, they also have a very, very good strikeout rate. You know, they also do not hit the ball very hard at all, but it's just, it's not working quite as well for them, you know? And I'm not entirely sure why that is yet. I'm sure there's a little bit of batted ball luck. I mean, they both play in ballparks that are pitchers parks to begin with. And the Cardinals have had this really weird dichotomy where even though they're not a great offensive team, Nolan Arenado is having a monster season. Like he is... I don't want to pretend I care about who would the MVP be on May 5th, but it might be him or Manny Machado. You know what I mean? And it's weird because like he looks great. You know, Paul Goldschmidt looks sort of typical Paul Goldschmidt adjusted. And then they have maybe half the lineup that is just absolutely unplayable. You know, I know I know there is not a scenario on this planet or any other where Yadi Molina does not finish the season with this team, right? He has one walk and one extra base hit and a 30 OPS plus what do you what do you do with that you can't do anything obviously and I know he brings value behind the plate and all that but that is rough their shortstop you know Paul DeYoung is off to another really rough start now this is like four years in a row where he has not performed his OPS plus has gone down every year of his career so you don't you don't see that very often Tyler O'Neill has not maintained what he did last year and I think the biggest surprise to me out of all of it is Dylan Carlson has taken a massive step back you know, he is he had like a pretty solid rookie season last year. And you're like, this is great. You know, nice prospect. If he maintains that, he's a solid player. If he builds on it, he might be a borderline star. He has a 186 batting average and a 250 on base and a 256 slugging. And if you look at the two weakest everyday players in terms of hard hit rate, number one is Tony Kemp, which is not unexpected at all. That's his game. Number two is Dylan Carlson. And if I had a good answer as to what happened there, then I would be the new hitting coach for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I don't, uh, but they, they're such like a weird, you know, there's, there's no middle ground here. You got Aaron has been great. A couple of guys have been okay. And then I don't know what to do with the other guys. Let us also not forget about Tommy Edmond, who's been the secret savior right. of their uh, offense, who actually has a higher expected weight on base than on Nolan Arenado this year, which is somewhat shocking. 392 for Edmond, 382 for, um, for Arenado, Edmund actually has three home runs. If you had Edmund having more home runs than Marcus Simeon, Trevor Story, and Carlos Correa combined on May 5th, please come collect your prize. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of the Cardinals. And to be clear to our listeners, the NL Central were, was the one division where it was, it was unclear who, like, 
the overperforming team was. And so we kind of went with the Cardinals just because they're probably the closest thing. But there's also probably some people that view them as a little bit of a disappointment. I think we both had the had the, the Brewers win that division. Yeah. So from our perspective, that's sort of like that was kind of the, the way to the way to look at it. it but like makes this one easy. I can say no because it's still the Brewers. You know who the real overperformer in this division is? The Pirates are ten and fourteen, to be honest. It's 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 I mean straight you know, Adam Wainwright's still doing things. It's just like it's I mean, they still could make the playoffs, I think, you know, with the extra wild card. And yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what to make of the, the Cardinals. The weird thing about Arenado, right? It's like, you know, we're seeing all these like star players I mentioned before, just now, like Simeon and Story haven't homered yet, right? These big free agent signings. Carlos Correa has two. There seem to be some star players who are, don't seem to be at all affected, you know. Rizzo. By, you know, like Arenado's slugging, you know, six, whatever. Judge is doing his, doing normal things. So it's like, Certain players, it's like no difference. Their stat lines look exactly the same. You're on Alvarez, Austin Riley. Like, no, do you watch them? Their stat lines, their their the ball off their bat looks no different. And then then there then there's this next class of player, and it's like night and day. So that's like one another one of these like weird things trying to come to come to grips with of like who's who's been affected most. Yeah, speaking of weird things that involve players performing better than you might think, Eric Hosmer, who. <laughs> Is the Padres have actually been pretty good, right? 16 and 9, they're in second place. The Dodgers are still better. I don't think either one of us thinks the Padres are better than the Dodgers at this point, but San Diego's been pretty good. Part of that is because Manny Machado has been arguably the NL MVP. And part of it, even though I have sort of made myself a promise I'm not going to take this seriously until June 15th, is that Eric Hosmer's been incredible. He's got an OPS of over a thousand. A lot of it is ground ball, you know, hard hit on the ground. And they're finding holes, and that's fine. And I don't necessarily believe this is going to last forever because I feel like we've seen this before. But you have to give him credit because he has been like objectively very good. You know, the guy who stood out to me is um, is who's playing shortstop in place of the injured Fernando Tatis is Hasian Kim, who's been really good. Like last year, he was I think kind of a mild disappointment. Right, wasn't clear he was actually going to be able to hit. Uh, but he's a pretty good shortstop defensively. He's slugging over five hundred, you know, with a, a solid on base percentage and. To think of a team that had to fill in for one of the brightest young superstars in the game, and you thought, well, maybe it'd be Cronenworth, maybe they'd move some pieces around. Kim has been great. And when you look at what they've done now, so you got Hosmer at first, Cronenworth at second, Kim at shortstop, Machado at third. They have the best infield defense in baseball. I'm sure Cardinals fans will uh, complain about that, but just looking at the numbers this year, it is pretty clearly the Padres, you know? So you take uh, some resurgent veteran hitters, very good infield defense. And a reinforced pitching staff that, you know, is still like remembering the scars of having to actually start Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez last year, you know, because like Joe, Joe Musgrove has been fantastic. Mackenzie Gore, after like years in the wilderness has come, he's looked great. They traded for Taylor Rogers uh, for Chris Paddock right before the season started. He's been fantastic. And we hyped this team up so much last year and they let us all down. And then I felt like we barely paid attention to them this year and they look good. So I don't know what to make of that, but I'm I'm I think I picked them to make the playoffs, and I feel comfortable with that because they're they're a solid team. Yeah, I mean it, they are, and I think that you know I don't really expect Hosmer, but of note has a 424 batting average on balls in play thus far this year, as one uh, does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't expect him to comp, you know to to keep that up all season, but you kind of need some of that to sort of float you until Tatis comes back, right? So like. You know, Hosmer's kind of playing over over his head. I mean, even Machado's got a 417 batting average on balls in play. That said, I believe Machado is a star player who will continue to be an impact offensive performer no matter what his Babbitt is. But like, I mean, they're getting basically nothing from Luke Voigt. That will probably improve. 
Profar is probably, as we discussed last week, playing well, maybe a little bit over his head with also kind of a weird line where he's basically like hitting extra base hits or nothing at all. But they're keeping their level up while Tatis is out. And then obviously, theoretically, or I should say theoretically, he can kind of come in and make up for it when some of those guys kind of come back to earth a little bit. The pitching's good. They got Clevenger back. As uh, Will Leach called them, uh, what did he call them, like a post-hype sleeper of baseball teams on our, <laughs> on our World Series draft uh, podcast? I think that's a very good description, and I think that they're uh, well-positioned to, to grab a playoff spot. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast with our three-batter minimum, starting with an extremely interesting fact about Walker Buehler. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriel and Matt Myers. We're in our three batter minimum. We have three interesting topics to get to. Here's the first one. Walker Bueller, the next time that he makes a start, it will be his 100th career major league start. The first 99 of his starts have been really, really good. How good? Well, I looked this up, and am I using a stat I don't love to make a point that benefits me in this show? Sure, but that's okay. If you go back to the start of integrated baseball, so Jackie Robinson in 1947. And if you were to look at every pitcher's first 99 starts, not games, starts of their career, Walker Bueller has the lowest whip, that's walks and hits per innings pitched, of any of them. And the names after him are pretty cool. Number two, Dwight Gooden, Chris Sale, Fergie Jenkins, Phil Necro, Vita Blue. Nobody has had a whip under one, one of those things per inning, except for Walker Bueller, which is really cool if you think about it, even if that's not a metric you love that much. And the thing that actually blew me away is so I went and I looked at the rest of the Dodgers. Their starting rotation right now, cumulatively, has a 190 ERA. And Matt, here's the thing I was going to tell you about before. They've had six starters make at least two starts. Tyler Anderson has the highest ERA of those six starters. What is his ERA? The worst ERA of any Dodger starter. Like, 255. He's the worst, and it's 255. Does that have a little bit to do with, you know, all the offensive environment? I'm 100% sure that it does, but also, oh my God, these guys have been amazing. Urias has been fantastic, even though his velocity's been down. Gonsolin's looked great. Kershaw's, you know, been great. Heaney was good before he got hurt. And now you have Walker Bueller, who, I mean, I know Kershaw is capital K Kershaw, right? Bueller to me is the ace of the staff now, and he is off to a borderline historic start to his career now there's caveat here obviously you know he threw like 200 fewer innings over his first 99 starts than Dwight Gooden did or especially you know Phil Necro so like 
baseball is different now. Totally understand that. Um, but anytime you can come up with a list and say, hey, to start a career in the integration era, this guy did something better than like, look at these Hall of Fame dudes. I think that's super impressive. I don't think we talk about Bueller enough, like in that upper echelon of guys. Well, when you consider that Doc Gooden pretty much had the greatest tart to his career of any pitcher in history right. <laughs> to be better than Gooden in like a notable stat is is pretty impressive in 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 that regard. Yeah, I, I think I saw the Dodgers starters have like a 1.99 year array. So I, I knew that like, you know, Anderson couldn't have had much more <laughs> right. deep into the twos. Uh, the, the thing of Bueller, though, is he's kind of doing it differently. Like when he came up, he was throwing 98, and now he's throwing more like 94, 95, and his strikeout rate is down. It's down to almost league average, which, you know, at first glance seems bad. But I remember last year he kind of spoke about this, and he, he almost implied he was doing it on purpose. You know, he was not trying to miss every bat he could. He was trying to get outs so that he could work deeper into games. And it's, it seems to be working for him. So I'm not entirely sure when his 100th start will be. I think it's going to be this weekend. They've got a whole bunch of TBAs in the rotation and they're going to Chicago or the weather has been pretty lousy. So, you know, who knows? But when he makes that 100th career start, uh, you'll know that you're seeing a guy who's gotten off to they start to a career that very few others have done. Uh, and I think that is super cool. The, the second topic here is a different pitcher who's having a very good year and I read a story about how he did it that I thought was really interesting. So we're talking about Eric Lauer, who was the first round pick of the Padres in 2016, their opening day starter in 2019, was traded to the the Brewers and kind of settled in as like a half decent, soft tossing back end starter. He didn't even make the roster in 2021. He was stuck at the alternate site. And this is a great story I saw in The Athletic by Will Salmon. He was throwing a bullpen. And he's like, this is boring. Like, I'm throwing 90. These fastballs aren't doing anything. This is why I'm not on the team. And in the middle of the bullpen session, he says to the pitching coach, he's like, uh, hang on, I'm going to try to do something else. And he he like pretended he was in his backyard, basically, and he tried to imitate Heraldus Chapman. And all of a sudden, he had like three more miles an hour of, <laughs> of velocity. And that's simplifying it a little bit. Like, they've been working on things, and it kind of like, you know, all happened there. But ever since then... Soft tossing Eric Lauer is no longer soft tossing, and now he's great. And if you were to look at strikeout rate this year, everybody with 20 innings pitched, number one is Shane McClanahan, which, wow. Uh, Number two is Carlos Rodon, and number three, ahead of Max Scherzer, is Eric Lauer. He has been phenomenal. He is, is, if you look at the Milwaukee rotation, so remember, Corbin Burns, defending Cy Young champion. He has been great. Brandon Woodruff, who I think is one of the most uh, underrated, like near aces in baseball. Adrian Hauser, who... Every year, I think Adrian Hauser is going to break out, and it never quite happens, but I always believe in him. Freddie Peralta, who's very good. And now Eric Lauer might be in that mix of guys, and then, of course, they got the guys in the bullpen. And I still don't believe they can hit because they never do. But if Eric Lauer is going to be a real thing, like if this is going to stick, I don't know how you beat this rotation in the playoff series. It seems impossible to me. I'll admit I did not see this coming, but like last year, the signs of this were there for Lauer. Um, he threw 118 innings. He had, had like a 3.19 ERA with like a 3.87 expected ERA, um, but his his fastball was up like a tick last year, up from like 91 to 92 and a half, and this year it's up to like 94. This is like, it was building a little bit. He started to sh- sow the seeds last year, um, and like, wow, he looks real this year. This like I, I was watching a Brewers game the other day and I saw him throwing like 94 and I was like, what is going on here? Because I, I'll admit, there was this like era of Padres baseball when they were like wearing those really nondescript uniforms where they were just kind of like a very nondescript team. And they basically had this group of like 
lefty pitchers like Clayton Richard and Eric Stoltz and like Eric Lauer. <laughs> I Eric like, Stoltz. I just like kind of yes. – I think because of that, I just kind of like grouped <laughs> Lauer in with them. I was just like, oh, here's just like another one of these just like – you know, like nondescript lefties, like who just kind of throws 89 and won't embarrass you, but isn't very good. And like, man, was I wrong <laughs> about that? Man, I'm I'm glad you brought up the uniforms. That's 100% true. Like they were bland and generic. And it sort of made me think that everybody on that team was bland and generic. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> funny when you see like the, when Fernando Tatis Jr. came up was when they were wearing those uniforms. So seeing yeah. him in those uniforms, it's like they don't do they don't do him justice. You know, it's like... He needs a better uniform. Like they, they, they brought back the brown just to sort of like justify Fernando Tatis Jr.'s excitement. Uh, while we were talking about the Brewers, they they just started their game against Cincinnati. Back to back game opening home runs off of Hunter Green, one for Luis Arias and one for Christian Yelich, who I believe has like three home runs in his last six games now, which are signs of life. Do you know without cheating? And maybe you have this roster up in front of you, so it's inevitable. Do you know who the best Milwaukee hitter has been this year? Um, Rowdy Telez. Rowdy Telez. I'll admit I know this because he like, you know, he didn't have like, you know, a grand slam last night and, and yeah. he's like it was. Yeah, yeah he uh, he's been fantastic. I want to go back quickly to the trade that they made after uh, 2019. So Padres traded Eric Lauer and Luis Arias to Milwaukee for Trent Grisham and uh, Zach Davies. And for a minute, it seemed like San Diego had gotten a total steal, right? Like, as we said, Lauer was not performing. Uh, Luis Arias was not hitting at all. And Grisham kind of looked like he was going to be a breakout star and he's not quite that i think he's a good solid outfielder and i still like him a lot and then davis is really a non-factor well now lauer looks like an ace and uh urius who i just said got one of those home runs has kind of shown a lot more power than i thought he would and it's it's interesting to go back and just think wow how different is that one going to look now like we thought it was a clear padres win and now not so much all right here's our last topic did the orioles break camden yards now hear me out on this one the Orioles, as everybody knows, uh, changed the dimensions of the outfield this year. They pushed the left field fence back 26 and a half feet and raised it as well. There's like this giant box out there. And when we ran the numbers over the offseason, we identified that over the last four years, an average of about 50 home runs would have been lost because they would have stayed in the park either as outs or extra base hits. And this was going to be a big deal because if you went back for the previous five seasons, Camden Yards saw the most home runs in baseball. And if you think to yourself, well, it's just because the Orioles haven't had any good pitching. You go back over the previous five seasons before that, when they had outstanding pitching, Camden Yards saw the most home runs in baseball. It's a home run park. So far in 2022, they have had the second fewest home runs at Camden Yards. And part of that is because of what's happening across baseball, I think, but I don't think that's any different in Baltimore than anywhere else. Part of it is because the their hitting, I think, has just gotten off to like a really atrocious start. And honestly, their pitching has been quietly like really interesting. You know, like the the uh, Felix Bautista, someone we've talked about a lot, Jorge Lopez, like the pitching is kind of interesting. And when we ran the numbers the other day, and uh, I didn't look last night, so I don't know if last night's games changed anything. They had only hit three balls, not not the Orioles themselves necessarily, but only three balls had been hit this year into that area that would have been home runs last year. So it's a little bit about that, but it's not entirely about that. And I I know it's early, Matt, but I don't know if I can function under the premise that Camden Yards might be a pitcher's park now. I'm I'm not sure I'm capable of changing my perceptions this much. It it takes it takes a while. It's like the reverse of when they changed the dimensions at Petco, where like Petco went from being like the most extreme pitcher's park to just being like middle of the road. And it took a few years for like people to kind of like wrap their heads around that. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm into the idea that the Orioles pitching could be kind of cool, which is especially shocking how that uh, John Means is out for the season. 
And I feel like, I don't know, another week or so of this, and then I'm going to have to come to you and say, hey, I should write about the Orioles and how the pitching is really interesting. Like Dylan Tate, I actually want to talk to you about Dylan Tate, because you are a uh, a big, you know, draft aficionado who was the number four overall pick in the draft. Like, I don't know what now, eight years ago and went through the Yankees and the Rangers systems. And now he's up and he looks really good. He's throwing hard. His sinker has movement. Uh, are you still in on Dylan Tate or has it been too long for you? I, I mean, I wouldn't rule out any, you know, especially like a, a pitcher with that, you know, like this is like, you know, very sort of inexact, but any pitcher with that kind of pedigree who kind of goes into the bullpen, like I feel like there's always, I mean, this is like a, you know, pretty common thing we see where we're like big prospects, starting pitchers, flame out. Okay, go, go try some things and then come back as a, you know, this is like the Andrew Miller story, right? Like, right. so it wouldn't, you know, yeah, it would not surprise me at all if Dylan Tate came back and, and turned out to be a, a good major league reliever. Breaking news from Boston, Rich Hill just dropped down to the side to throw a 66-mile-an-hour slider, and he got a strikeout. It's a very entertaining video, which I highly recommend you go check out. All right, we're going to take a quick break on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we will be back with our pair of guys that we should be talking more about. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Before Matt and I each describe a player you should know a little bit more about, uh, Matt, I heard you had an adventure at the ballpark this past weekend. Well, it actually wasn't at the ballpark specifically. It was actually on the subway ride home from the ballpark. No no story has ever started like that and ended well. <laughs> no. So went to the, the Mets Braves uh, doubleheader uh, on, I guess it was Tuesday night, which was like, I mean, the second game was like a game from like the 80s. Uh, Carlos Carrasco pitched eight innings. Kyle Wright pitched seven innings despite giving up three runs. The game took two hours and 18 minutes. It was wild. So because it was a doubleheader in the first the way it started, we're out of the ballpark at nine o'clock, which is just weird for a night game. So get on the seven train with my friends and who walks on behind us but Jeff Francoeur, Chip Carey, and the whole Braves like broadcast crew just you know, taking the train home from the ballpark, which Jeff Francoeur has this reputation. I've never met him personally for being like the friendliest, most gregarious guy. And he was, you know, he played for the Mets. He's just like, people recognize him. He's just like, you know, being the life of the party, just kind of like chit-chatting with everyone, taking selfies, all that. It's like a very nice little, nice little like moment. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and then we get a train delay. And then... <laughs> You know on those new seven trains, I'm saying this to you, Mike, New Yorkers, non-New Yorkers won't know this. On the new trains, they've got these bars in the middle 
where um, people can hold on so that they don't lose their balance. Well, Jeff Francoeur and like the Braves, like sound guys, start getting in a competition to see who can like hang on, hold their body weight on the bar uh, longer than the other. And the whole, you know, the whole subway car is watching as as Francoeur and this like other Braves like radio guy are having this competition. Francoeur won, by the way. Of course, he did. So it was it was an amusing it was an amusing ride home. But there's also like a second part of it, which is especially amusing to me that I think you will appreciate and some of our listeners might appreciate, which is back when I used to work at ESPN, uh, I used to sometimes write for ESPN New York, which I don't think exists in the same form anymore. But for a while, like when it launched 2009, 10, 11 range, it was like kind of trying to compete with the New York Post and Daily News, kind of tabloidy kind of coverage with like, you know, bold headlines, snarky headlines, really poking fun at, at, at people and really trying to play that game. And I used to occasionally write stuff for them, you know, occasional Mets and Yankees analysis pieces. And one piece I wrote, which is when Jeff Rancor was on the Mets, was basically like, and it was like, basically, this guy's terrible. They shouldn't be playing him anymore. They should probably get, they should probably release him. Uh-huh. And the, the headline that was, I, I, the headline, reminder, the writers don't write the headlines, people. But the headline that they put on top of the story was, throw Frenchie from the seven train. Oh, no. So, so for me, 12 years later, to then run into Jeff Rancor on the seven train was felt very, I don't know, poetic, but uh, amusing. I apologize for my snark, my start from 12 years ago. It was probably a little uh, over the top, but uh, Frenchie seems good natured overall. And it was a, an amusing experience on the way home from the ballpark. You should have gone up to him and said, hey, did you read that story that was in ESPN New York uh, a bunch of years ago? I also like how you, who are now you're now an editor, are uh, reminding people that the editors write the bad headlines. So thank you for that. You mean the, you mean the provocative headlines? Yeah. Well, let's let's go with that. All right, we're gonna finish up each week. We look into a guy that you should know a little bit more about, and a lot of times it's someone young or new or under the radar. And this time I'm going to go with someone who turned 32 years old and is in his let's see ninth year in the big leagues. CJ Crone. C.J. Crone of the Colorado Rockies has nine home runs, tied with Eric Judge and Anthony Rizzo for the most in the majors. He is a 184 OPS plus. Yes, he's a Rocky. He's got massive splits, seven home runs at home, seven hits on the road. I know. Fine. Whatever. Here's the thing that kind of stood out to me, though. I was looking at the outs above average leaderboard this morning, and that is the StatCast defensive metric. And if you were to look, number one is Dansby Swanson. Number two is Jonathan Scope. And then in the midst of a three-way tie, or excuse me, a large tie for third, is CJ Crone, who I've never really thought of as being like a great defensive first baseman and a month of data is not going to change my mind about that. But still, every time I look up, he's crushing the ball and now he's playing good defense. And if you kind of look at his career, it's it's been maybe a little under the radar because nobody loves a righty, righty first baseman who's not Paul Goldschmidt, right? He was the 17th overall pick by the Angels way back in 2011, and he kind of got stuck. He got stuck behind Albert Pujols. So like he was up and down and injured and healthy and good and bad a lot uh, from 2014 to 2017. And then his adventure began, 2018 to the Rays, where he hit 30 home runs and got designated for assignment for his troubles. The next year with the Twins, the next year only like two weeks of games with Detroit due to a knee injury. And then he signed a minor league deal right before the season started with Colorado last year. And he's been great. In fact, over the last five years, a 124 OPS plus and 96 home runs. I'm not saying he's suddenly the new young superstar because he's not. He's obviously helped by Coors Field and Colorado and all that. 
Uh, but he's been a real revelation for a Rockies team that for a number of years had a really hard time finding offense. And as I think I've said before, they flipped the script there. I kind of like the offense a little bit, right? Like I really like Connor Joe. Randall Gritchuk works there. Chris Bryan hasn't done anything, but I'm sure he will. And I don't trust the pitching depth at all. It's the opposite. And here's to CJ Crone, who has finally, I think, found a home, a home where he is valuable and uh, they seem to like him. Yeah, I mean, he's been remarkably consistent over the last few years. If you go back, you know, 2019, his expected weight on base was 365. 2020, 361. Last year, 364. Uh, This year, it's 415. Probably a little over his head, but like, he's a productive player. And, you know, because he's got that, two things, the, the profile that like, generally is not a popular one, the right, right first baseman, as you said. Also, the, you know, people can't help themselves with sort of the core skepticism, but he was a free agent this year. He signed a two-year deal for $14.5 million, and he has outproduced that over the last few years, and he's doing it again this year. He's definitely a, had an interesting career path. I'd forgotten about him sort of being, you know, quote-unquote, blocked by Albert Pujols. The guy I want to talk about is also a first-round pick, and you mentioned his team before as being playing a little bit better than uh, – expected, which is the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that's Brian Hayes, who's off to like a, a really nice start. I don't want to oversell it, and he actually had a really bad doubleheader yesterday when I was doing research for the show. He lost like you know 20 points of batting average just yesterday, but even now he's hitting 304, 404, 380, and like the quality of contact is really good. He's in the 90th percentile for average exit velocity, 91st percentile in whiff rate, 87th percentile for expected batting average. You know, he came up in 2020 um, at the end of the year, you know, the weird pandemic-shortened season, and he was really exciting. He was really hitting the ball hard. There's always been belief that he's going to rake. He had, a, you know, an OPS over 1,100 and 95 plate appearances. So there was a ton of hype, and then he was bad last year. He had a left a left wrist injury, 689 OPS, and it was strange because on opening day of this year, despite the terrible season, the Pir- he agreed to a long contract extension. The Pirates still obviously had belief in him. Um, obviously, you know, based on the way these kind of pre-arbitration deals go, that like if he's at all decent, like the club sort of gets the sort of excess value as, as it were. Eight years, 70 million, the biggest contract the Pirates have ever signed. And then of course, on opening day, he's got a left forearm spasm and people are like, oh my goodness, what's going on? But he's continued to hit really well this year. The glove is still great, despite a terrible error yesterday on a chopper that uh, you showed me before we started recording. He's got a 135 weighted weighted on weighted runs created plus. You know, we're 100 is league average, and another one of those that's a little deceiving because when you look at he's slugging 380, you're like, oh, really? But you know, 404 on base percentage. So it's really you know for a Pirates team that's you know going through a bit of a tough sort of start to a rebuild. It's good to see that like. The guy they've sort of identified as the first key piece is is really, you know, starting starting to play well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Pirates and I don't want to like hijack the Hayes discussion because I agree with you. Like he is a star in the making. He's a fantastic defender. He can hit. He'll be there for a while, like one good healthy season. And I think people will really, you know, see that he's in this like upper echelon of third baseman. But the quick Pirates thing I wanted to know is they, they don't have good pitching, right? Like the rotation is super weak. But if you were to look at their uh, bullpen, the three like primary relievers in the back of their bullpen are to say they are no names, I think actually gives it too much credit because I guarantee most people will not have heard of any of these three guys. And they have been great. David Bednar, Dylan Peters and Will Crow. And if you know all three of them, well, hello, Ben Sherrington. Thank you for listening. They have combined for just over 44 innings and they have allowed three earned runs as a trio, which is really incredibly impressive and a rebuild does not come from the back of the bullpen usually by the time this team is good one or more of those guys will probably be playing somewhere else but i just thought that was really interesting because those are 
three guys who are, I think, wildly off the radar. I'm pretty sure Bednar is a Pittsburgh native, um, and that was a big deal when he got traded from San Diego to them. Uh, so I'd have to check into that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. But that's cool. I mean, signs of life for a Pittsburgh team uh, that obviously needs it. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll see you next week.